Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. I'm Tim Cronin. We're with Debbie Champion. Hi, Debbie. (laughs) Hi. It's delightful to have you here. How well do you two know each other? We know each other through, what, 30-something years, just on and off, though. We have a relationship based upon the people we know. That's right. I was hired by Sam Reinerson as my first boss. That's right. He's one of the founding members of your firm, as are you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your firm and your practice? Sure. My firm is Rainier's and Seuss, Sherbush and Champion. We are a firm of, gosh, I haven't counted lately, but a little over 30 attorneys. And we have offices in Illinois, Kansas City, and St. Louis. And we do almost 100% defense work. Each unit at the group at the firm does a different type of work. But I like to say I like the kind of cases that would walk in off of the court square and people would walk in with a problem that I'm a country lawyer at heart. But I like to take any case that that I find interesting <laughs> that can hold my interest for a few minutes. Then I, that's the kind of case I like. We're especially happy to have you, Debbie, because as you may guess, our perspectives on this podcast tend to lean <laughs> in a particular way. And so we're happy to have and we're trying to have more defense attorneys on to to shed some light on the other side of the bar and help even the scales. And we've had the pleasure, you and I have tried at least one case together. At least, I feel like that was a fun one. Than one, but. It was at least one, one particularly. Yeah, one. one we both immediately think of. Yeah, and then I'm sure you and John have been, have been having John and I have had one also that we, it go that went to trial that we often think of yeah. <laughs> as well, that we immediately think of. But we've had a lot of cases together. It was a couple sessions ago in between whatever we were talking about on the day. John and Eric and I just started riffing and talking informally about like where our creative ideas came from. And we spent 15 to 20 minutes talking about that. And then we realized, oh, we should probably have a podcast about it. And what a better person to have ta- help talk about it, Debbie, than yourself. So as far as our topic, we were thinking creativity in the law and brainstorming. And let me just take a minute or two to set the tone because I was thinking this morning, of some ideas that might just launch us into a rather open-ended conversation. Early in my career, I thought of law as not a creative endeavor. I thought of a thicket of rules you have to navigate. And then fast forward, after hearing many times people talk about the practice of law as an art, not a science, it's got me thinking. And we, in our podcast, we brought on at least two episodes. We have people from the theater profession come in and talk about how lawyers present. And it's not about laws and rules. It's about approaches. I ran into a book a few years ago on creativity. John Cleese is the author of Monty Python fame. And it's called Creativity, A Short and Cheerful Guide. And it is both. And he defines creativity as you are being creative when you find a better way of doing things than before. Because it's a, it's a tricky concept to define. But let me offer two more quotes. And I'll start with, this is just an idea that's become apparent to me. Creativity is not magic. It doesn't always just show up. So two artists, one is Chuck Close. Inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. Pablo Picasso, learn the rules like a pro 
so you can break them like an artist. And I think we as lawyers are often doing creative work, but much of the time we don't think of it as creative work. We just think about it as being lawyers. And with regard to trials, it means working with your raw materials of the witnesses you have and the knowledge they bring and the documents you have and so forth. But there's a lot that goes into this that cannot be boiled down to particular rules. One example would be, what is your order of witnesses? Is that something that you can just read a book and find out who to call first? So with that as the launch point, I would just suggest, let's start a conversation. What is it like to be a lawyer in terms of creativity or brainstorming? I think it's definitely huge, especially for those litigators like us who try cases. You've, you can't just be a robot. You're trying to think you need to know your facts, you need to put in the work, read what you need to read, know the law, etc. But you've got to try to figure out the best way to structure your questioning, your open, your close, every single thing you do in front of that jury based on those unique set of facts to present them the best way you can to your client. I personally find I'm at my least creative when I'm sitting at my desk staring at my computer. Like my creative ideas either come when I'm sitting and talking to John or someone else here at the firm just talking about the case and talking it through. I start like coming up with ways to say things or ideas. But even more than that, one of my favorite shows of all time is Mad Men. And I think I said this quote to you guys last time, and I'm probably definitely going to get the quote wrong. But Don Draper in Mad Men is trying to explain to a new copywriter at the firm like how to come up with the idea. And he says, think about it deeply. Learn everything. Then completely forget about it, and later the idea will come. And I think I get my ideas like right when I want to be about to fall asleep, and I'm trying, like, relaxed. And then all of a sudden, I think of my entire opening statement, and I have to get up and write it all down. So I, mine comes when I'm not necessarily, like, trying to think, okay, now I need to be creative. It's when I'm relaxed and not trying to put too much effort into that, personally. I don't think of myself as creative at all. I would disagree. Here's why. I'm terrible at arts and crafts. <laughs> and all my friends are really good, and they're really good artists. I don't think of myself as creative, but I do think of myself as strategic. And so I'm now realizing maybe what you all think of or are talking about as creativity is what I think of as strategy, something strategic. I'm more like I'm trying to build a house, and this house needs to look a lot different than the last trial or house that yeah. I built or tore down. <laughs> And so I think that's a really good point, though. And one of the things you mentioned, I have the same thing when I fall asleep. You think about all the things that you, the things come to you that have been percolating all day. Right. Things when you're trying to focus on it. But I think the brainstorming with other people really helps because you get those different perspectives and that group think solves problems. I remember one time I was getting ready for trial. The next day I was going to trial. There was a piece of evidence I really needed to get in, and I didn't want to create error to get it in, and it shouldn't come in. I thought, I can't get this in anyway. So they all went home, and it was time to go home. Everybody went home, and about 8.30 that night, I was going down in the elevator to get in the car to go home to start trial the next morning, and the elevators to the garage opened, and one of my associates was there, and he said, okay, I got it. And he had this great way to get the evidence in, and we did, and it worked, and it was great. I don't think of that as creativity, though, I, but that's exactly what it is. Yeah, and it just comes at the most, like, random time. You're right. For me, at least. I, I keep wit thinking about cases. I'll get in the you car driving home, 
and I have reminders where I'll be dictating stuff in my phone or I'll, worse, I'll call my the office and dictate something on the voicemail to my secretary <laughs> there or type it up. But it's just, it to me, you're just always thinking. And it's part of it too is when I get it, like in a deposition, the time I think I'm, I get most of my ideas is when, when somebody's throwing like the other issues, like the other side's throwing their issues in your face. And like when you're listening to somebody say some BS stuff or whatever, and you're going, come on, that's ridiculous because of this <laughs> and the ideas. But they, they don't always come when you want them to come. It's how can you quit thinking about the cake? I had a railroad crossing case years ago, and it was a signal deal. And I couldn't, every crossing I went over, I'm thinking and looking at the thing, or we got a case now with a rig, but the, it's the rear impact guard on the back of tractor yeah, trailers yeah. The, where the car went under it. Yeah. And I'm driving anywhere on the highway. I'm looking at all of them and seeing how they're designed. But it's just, I can't sit down and just be creative. I can't just I can't. sit down and say, okay, I got to do this. I think it's like writing, it's like telling stories. It's like reading a chapter of a book and it's writer's block. You can't just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna be creative for the next, I got 15 minutes to be creative and then it's done. I think it just happens. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think the beginning of a cross at trial or what I'm going to say in rebuttal in close at trial the things I think of while I'm getting really angry about what the other person is saying yeah. end up being way better than what I wrote right. down that right. I was going to say. I'll give you another example is in, in, in depots that we take for trial where there, it's not a discovery deposition and you plan every question and the issues and what they're going to raise and how you're going to do it. And then all of a sudden you'll read the depot later and the best job you did was on, on redirect or, you know, like where exactly. you, yeah. is nothing planned, you just listened and reacted. Right. You know, where you listened and you went, oh, okay. Oh, I made my case in yeah. five questions. Right. And so, Good thing I wasted yeah. six hours. It, it's, <laughs> I guess it's, it's being engaged, being prompted on stuff yeah. a little bit. And boiling it down to what's important to you to go back and talk about. That's yeah. the key. I had a case one time. It was a medical malpractice case where this woman was in an accident. She was diabetic and, they, and she couldn't eat. So they were feeding her through whatever, however they do that. And then also giving her insulin. Then they put her in a, a regular room. Then they quit giving her the whatever the... They kept giving her insulin. She couldn't eat. And she Ooh. went into a diabetic coma and they didn't check anything for... I think it was 24 hours. Never checked her blood sugar. Anyway, it turned out terrible. And she ended up dying. One of the things that finally struck me in the case was... And it was... I think it was something one of the, one of the witnesses said or one of the experts or whatever that if they'd have just put her on a bench outside on the parking lot, she'd still be here. Wow. And I thought, well, yeah, wow, that's pretty. Yeah, that's much I mean, better than how I was saying. exactly. I'm sitting there thinking they didn't do this and that, and I'm thinking that's enough said. Yeah, <laughs> that's really. Amazing. It's a matter of perspective, and so it's that's why it's good to get everybody else's perspective because it makes you a better strategist or more creative. I remember last month before Fox had on to Kill a Mockingbird, and it was a rewritten play. It was something you hadn't did seen. Did you go see it? I did. It was fantastic. I went and saw it. Did you? Oh yeah, I did. I did Eric, you notice did you the new characters that it was, didn't yeah, know before. But, okay, yeah, yeah. so there was this part at the very end. I don't remember the names, but it was the guy who used to be the boss of the defendant. And do you remember this? He's talking to Scout and her brother. I he pret he's, pretends like he's a drunk the whole yes, play, and yes. you find out he's so not. So this is from him. So we're watching it. We're watching it, and the guy gives this quote. And I'm like, oh, crap, i got to write that down. Yeah. So I have to get up and go write it down. And I couldn't get it exactly right, so I put it on Facebook and said, if anybody's going, <laughs> write this really down wonderful. for me. You know, I'm Aaron happy. Sorkin wrote that. Play. That is, That's a really good quote. It's a good quote. <laughs> and it has to do with cruelty. 
And funny, all my quotes always are pretty good quotes that I come up with for plaintiffs, but I try to turn them around when I need them. <laughs> but it was uh, cruelty, something like cruelty can surprise you. It sneaks up on you. And so it goes on to talk about how <clears throat> some of the cruelest people appear to you to be like people, like your neighbors you've known all your life, mm -hmm. something like that. But it was fantastic. It was a fantastic quote. And I haven't used it yet, but I'm going to. <laughs> <And> <laughs> you I'm, will find a way to fit that in. That's right. The next and, and the same thing with John. You said you dictate. I do, too. And I'll come up with something or I'll hear something and I dictate it. And they type it up and they'll say, what follows this? And I'm like, I don't know yet, but I'll use it eventually. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> little post-its exactly. in car. And, but, yeah. but the key is not to use the dumb things, the things in the wrong spot. Like, yeah. like I remember one time I had heard this quote, your mouth wrote a check that you couldn't cash. And I tried to put that in a closing, and my husband said, get rid of the stupid quote. I know you're trying to use that <laughs> quote or something, but you're not using it. I, did, I didn't use it, but <laughs> that gave us for critics. Linus Pauling was a Nobel Prize winner who was asked, how, how are you so smart? And he said, have a bunch of ideas and throw away the bad ones. <laughs> oh, that, yeah. and that's the key. <laughs> John, you used to come into my office when I worked with you here at the firm, and you would be talking about your case and how you're going to handle it, and you're going to bring this witness in, you're going to say that. And I finally realized you didn't want me just to listen. You <laughs> wanted me to play catch with you. It's like, here, let's yeah. throw the ball yeah. back and forth. And do. And I think that's one way that you were figuring out, exploring spaces to see what works and where you're going to get pushback. And I think that's, that is one place. And also in the quiet, what Tim's saying, going to sleep. It's the thing you don't want to be doing when you're trying to fall asleep, but then you appreciate it when it happens. I think it can happen in both those places, when you're actively engaging with others and when you're in quiet. Yeah, and it's just not, the words are so powerful. The right words at the right time is, it, it's, they can be incredible. And it's not just words, but so much is visual and what we try to do. You're trying to frame your issues on both the plaintiff and defense side and picking the right words in the right order can make entirely the difference between winning and losing on either side. What about nonverbal? Any nonverbal creativity you all do? I try to tell the jury not to look at me. I'm not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you well, say with your the yeah, all the yeah. time and all. Uh, stare at Debbie the whole time. <laughs> Especially when you wear the, the yeah. tuxedo to, to no, trial. We're always trying to come up with the perfect exhibit, right, on, on both sides. And it can make all the difference in the world. I know in the opioid case, the first one John and I tried, oh, geez, seven years ago, we just had all of this information about all of these prescriptions over these years. And it got to the point where it was like, we, we cannot do this except just with a very simple bar chart that without even saying a word, I think I put it up at the very beginning of opening and people went like their eyes really? got open. Yeah. Wow. Like, like, oh my God. But we needed an extension. Like, it, it, it literally, we were like, we couldn't fit it on the poster board because then the first bar would be too small to not see. And so wow. it literally went off the jar. That, that is an effective use of an exhibit. And so I think that's, that can be the creativity of coming up with the right demonstratives, Debbie, can be more important than anything that you say. Yeah. I'm going to go back to John Cleese. He has some quotes about finding creativity in the quiet moments. And this is a series of quotes from the book, which I really enjoyed. And these are all quotes. Great ideas come to you in a whisper. Sometimes you're walking 
and a voice in your head speaks the ideas better than you could have ever done if trying. Often, you hear it only after you put your work down and start taking a brisk walk, or when your head hits the pillow. Whenever that happens, you better get up and write it down. Yeah. And this is a man who is, as you all know, he wrote skits for in, in, right. in movies. He said, creativity is elusive like a dim star. Sometimes you can't see it until you look away. And there's two more. He warns adults, we need to remember how to play and give ourselves time for ideas to percolate. And the last one, I began to realize that my unconscious was working on stuff all the time without my being consciously aware of it. And that's the problem with the unconscious. It is unconscious. It's like the language of dreams. It shows you images and feelings. It nudges you around without you immediately knowing what it's getting at. I thought those were yeah, awesome for really the good. for the quiet version of figuring things out yeah. creatively. And it's true. I guess it has to do with level of intelligence because I get some of those, but I mostly get them from other people. Yeah, me too. Get a quote book, go online. <laughs> or get ask people about it. Yeah. And then people will, as your example with somebody sitting on, they would, she would have done better yep. if they sit her on a bench outside. I love that. I'm thinking, how am I going to work that into something? But that's, but uh, just to hear it from other people because they're more creative. I have a book in my office called Uncle Anthony's Unabridged Analogies. And it's three, it's just thick. It's huge. And it's four, it's like was written by a lawyer about his like not very educated uncle who was like brilliant great wit and then this lawyer took a bunch of stuff he said and then it also has bible quotes and quotes from famous philosophers and quotes from ians and it's organized by issue like by wow. types of torts or closing about and so i go to that and i'll start reading i'm like i'm, I'm gonna steal that one i had a case about a client who was she became blind and i snuck a helen keller quote in there i felt a little bit odd about it but the jury seemed to appreciate it one of the things i do like if johnny and i are trying a case when we're sitting around talking about the case i like to go to the point of such outlandishness of you know what we should do x y and z things you totally can't do in a court of law and then somebody says something good and you're laughing and go wait a minute let's figure out let's figure out a way that's a little bit more toned down that we actually can do that so that helps me like not being restricted to what can I actually do. And like, this would be hilarious. I think I might be able to do that in a little bit less severe way. So when we're trying to figure out what we're doing, it's, I think we can't aim at something like we want to win the trial. Whatever I'm doing, I want to have it hit well with the other, with the audience. And so as an attorney, I have statements by witnesses and I have documents. I'm thinking, I want to arrange those things and put them in the right order so that when it plays out, smacks, just wow, that's something bigger than it would have been had I done it differently. So that seems to be what I'm aiming at, and this is the best way I know how to express it in words, maximum impact. So the last case Johnny and I tried together, that was the suicide attempt case out in Clay County, which we didn't think we could win. We somehow did. I thought the whole case really came down to the defendant psychiatrist who let our patient go after she'd made suicide attempts. And we really didn't think she should have been let go. And then she made another attempt later and was unsuccessful, but she burned her say It was horrible. And I'm trying to think, like, how can I convey that he, I just don't think he was paying attention to anything that had been going on with this lady. Because me just saying it 
doesn't mean anything. And Johnny and I just kept talking and talking about it. And I started to have an idea percolate and I didn't tell him I was going to do this. He probably would have tried to convince me not to do it, but I'm glad I did. I thought I had to find a way to do it visually. And what I ended up coming up with was I took all of the records that this hospital had from this client for years and it was three feet high. And I pulled a table up next to the podium close to where the witness was. And I put all of them there and everybody's staring at me. The jury says, is this guy going to go through all the medical records? And I had tabbed this psychiatrist's three-page note. And I said, can you tell me all the things that would support the decision that you made to let her go? Would all that just be contained in your report? He should have said everything that's in the met, but he didn't. And I went, okay. And so I took out those three pages and I left the stack sitting on the table. And then I took out his three pages and I handed it to him. This was risky. And I said, I've gone through these three pages and not everything here supports discharging her. Can you highlight for me what in here actually supported discharging her? And the guy ended up highlighting two lines. Wow. Pages. That's fantastic. And he handed it back. And I said, are you sure? Yeah. And then I took out a, I got a scissors from the bailiff. The judge looked at the bailiff like maybe she shouldn't give me that. <laughs> and I cut out those two lines and then I took the other rest of the three pages and the three feet of medical records, and I dragged a trash can right in front of the doctor, and I went, so I guess none of this mattered. And I dumped it all in the trash can, and the jury like their head back. I love that. And I just ended it, and then Johnny gave close, and the first thing Johnny did in close was he said, this man had an opportunity to tell you everything that supported him discharging, and he took that two lines, and he taped it and slapped it on the front of the podium and basically dared defense counsel to take it off, and he didn't. So the whole time defense counsel was giving his clothes, they're looking at that only two lines, and I kept the trash can with three feet of medical records sitting up from the table. And I, you, in tough cases especially, you gotta try to find ways on the little moments to make the biggest impact that you can. And that's where, if you can't be creative, you might be sunk. So in what universe would that not be considered good theater? What you yeah, just did. I thought like I got to put on a show. That's a visual. It's a great point. Impactful. It's memorable. The it's juror, memorable. jurors that supported us, nine of them, the three that didn't were very upset that we won and they stormed off and they were crying. But the nine that supported us came out and they were like, you guys, we felt like we were on an episode of Law and Order. Oh, I was like, well, funny. I was trying to keep you entertained. That is funny. But you do have to work. In yeah. Part of the creativity is how to get through what I'm trying to say in some other way to the jury. And especially the most important part for your case that you need them to remember, you better make them remember that part. Yeah, yeah. And visuals, as you were saying, the visuals. I, we, I, I didn't, we didn't use this, I don't think, in the case, in, in, the, in an opioid case. The number of pills, like over four years. You wanted to bring, you wanted to bring in trash bags. I was Why not? Dump them out. You know, yeah. vases or jar. We tried all kinds of different things at the office, and it, we ended up getting Skittles. And we kind so you of, did um, do it. We did it at the office. We didn't do it at trial for some reason, but it was it was a hell of a lot of Skittles. <laughs> it was just big bowls of them. I think what you did, I think you did do that in part. I think we had a bunch of them, and we are like, we can't bring all of these up. So I think you had them all filled up, and I think you brought one of them, and it was some giant clear canister, and you were like, I got the other 49 of them sitting in my office because I couldn't haul them up here. Is that right? Oh, that's funny. But it was, they could see it. You know what it was? I said, at one point, 
our poor client had gone in and gotten refills for eight different medic all these different medications, and he would have needed a shopping bag yeah. to carry pills. It was just so many pills. It was crazy. And then we had another trial we had right before COVID happened. I hadn't thought of this, but it was all about the little girl's dehydration. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And yeah. you were going through and establishing how dehydrated she was, and she was a, what was she? She was 35 pounds. Yeah, she, she was, a, she was small. She might have been five years old, something like that. And to really make the visual, you did it with the defense expert. You had sitting in a closed box a clear two-liter bottle of water, and then after he said the amount, you walked up with it and went, this is how yeah, much water was missing it. from this little right. That's bottle. how much fluids they gave her within an hour to get her mm-hmm. rehydrated. Yeah, get her rehydrated. It was too late, and then we left that sitting on our council table. Yeah, the rest of the trial. It reminds me of that. You all probably have heard this: the Melvin Belli demonstrative evidence with the guy who lost the leg. And he, do you know about this? That he, <clears throat> so Melvin Belli was the king of demonstrative evidence because he did this, and it's exactly what you're talking about, which is. He, the, somebody lost a leg. I don't remember the details of the case, but he comes into court and he's got this humongous leg size butcher wrapped with blood on it. Oh my thing. goodness. I have not heard this. That's it on his table. <laughs> Never mentions it the entire trial, but they all believe he might have the leg there. Oh, and so what it does is make the jury think about it. It's just so much better. And you all are really good at it, but I have to say, there are a lot of unsuccessful attempts that we've all probably made. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we've all, and people do it all the time. I see it done a lot too. I remember I tried a grocery store case. Somebody fell in a grocery store, and the other side came in with the competing grocery stores' food carts, not carts, bags and water that they drank the whole time. And the jury every day there was more stuff from the other competing grocery. And the jurors would come in and look, see what they had that day, and roll their eyes. It just made. And it was really funny. But I remember a lot of unsuccessful stories yeah. that I've seen. But, so that's the reason I think you have to talk to other people. So somebody will say, no, I think that's yeah, play, not. Play it out. Yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> no, with, we did, I did one with a picture where it was uh, some kids in a car that drove around a curve where the guardrail had been knocked off. Yeah. And they went over the curve. Yeah. That was the case. That was the case was about. And, of course, they're saying it's nighttime and they're, they should have been able to see it. And, and so... We got the weather records. It was over. It was cloudy that night. I'm trying to show it was dark. And I said, you probably know the photographer. Who was it? It was. Oh, uh, Fabian Sickles. Yeah, it was Fabian. <laughs> it was Fabian. And so great. I said, look, I want to get a picture just to show the jury how dark it was yeah. and go out there with no flag. Just go out there and take this picture. And I thought, okay, give it a shot and see what it looks like. He brought it back and it was like cold black. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say daytime. No, we <laughs> you couldn't see anything. It's like as close to your eyes. And I thought I, I, I hesitated to use it because I thought, I don't know, there's some variables I'm missing. Or, but I ended up using it, and it was made the point. That's funny. It was almost like just closing your eyes. But then again, they're driving, and it's that dark. Who knows? I remember trying a case down. I'm not going to say the county, but it was in a small county <clears throat> and a poor county. And it was against a corporation in that county. It was a death case, and I was worried it was going to backfire. But I did it anyway. And so what I wanted these jurors to realize is this company is a corporation. And the guy who ran it was not from originally that county, but the people who worked there were. And I had no relevant testimony I could give from anybody who worked there. So I couldn't just call people in that they might know. Couldn't do that. So instead, I had a schedule drawn out 
each day we were in, t- t- uh, in trial of who I wanted to come in from that company, where I wanted them to sit, how long they had to stay there, what they had to wear. It was great because, one, it interestingly took a lot of the attention away during things that were going on the case. The people would walk in, and you could almost always see who knew them because that person would start doing this. Oh, they're so What is he doing here? It was really, it worked. But Debbie, you were talking about, distra- like, you're talking about distracting. Yeah. And I, and I remember a story, and I, there was a lawyer, this is back in the days when they smoked cigars in the courtroom, mm-hmm. and somebody <laughs> took a, they would take a paper clip or something and put it in their cigar and so when they're smoking at the council table, the ashes would get on three inches long and they wouldn't fall off. The ashes. I've heard that. And he was, he was very careful about not flicking it. So the jury, when somebody's being crossed or during the other side's close, all their eyes are on this cigar. <laughs> you know <what? laughs> That's hilarious. I remember hearing that. I can't remember who it was. But these people, what I was hoping to accomplish is that they would see that the people that they maybe didn't know but knew lived there. They would realize, ooh, we hit this hard enough. These people are going to lose their jobs. That's you know, what I was trying to. I had a case, and it was a case I had in the city, and I had a client who had a back injury, a very bad surgery, and real terrible back. Yeah, no question, he had a real serious injury, and he was about my age now, and had was a laborer, and he just the benches in the yeah, in the couldn't courtroom sit couldn't sit there. I told him if you need to stand, and so I had him sit because so I, I didn't want him to be a distraction in the back of the courtroom in the pews. And I said, that way you can just get back out and stand stand behind the pew a little bit if yeah. you need to. And so throughout the case, it was a week long case, three or four days, it, it, he would get up and walk back and forth, hold it. <laughs> and so finally we get a sidebar and that's when the other attorney said, Your Honor, I know the man's hurt, but for God's sake, <laughs> need to be doing the death march in the back of the, you know, in the, back of the courtroom. But it, I didn't intend it to be a distraction, but it was like these people are going, this poor guy. And it was, he they was knew hurting. he yeah, was they hurt. knew he was hurt. They knew you know? he was hurting. And you're thinking, I'm, what can I add word-wise to that? To see, right. They hear about the surgery, but they don't know how it's affected him other than the man. He can't. He couldn't sit down for 15 And it's those are hard benches out there. Yeah, oh, yeah. Hopefully the defense counsel didn't bring a PI in the next day with a video of your client. No, riding no. A well, it never before. helped. <laughs> yeah, that never helped. But also, I've had cases go wrong for the plaintiff just because the plaintiff was outside. And this we all hear rumors about this. Outside, at a stoplight, at lunch, and the light was walk and turned to don't walk, and so they trotted across. The jury said, I saw him run, and he's not hurt. Yeah. And the man yeah. was hurt. Yeah. He was hurt. We weren't even asking for a That's a whole other yeah. issue, the, the surveillance stuff. And huh. I don't see that. You know why I don't see this? I'm not representing people where it's questionable whether yeah. they're yeah. hurt or not usually. Yeah. We don't see but, it very well. I have clients where I know they're being surveilled because they can. my clients can tell. And I don't ever even see the surveillance footage because they don't turn it over to me because they're not going to use it because yeah. it shows that my clients are hurt. Yeah. I saw one years ago where somebody claimed they couldn't work and then they found him working on a roof on someone else's oh house. And while they're shooting the video, the guy slipped and fell off the roof oh, onto no. a bush, got off the bush, climbed the, back up the ladder and got back to work. <laughs> and I, I remember a case, I think it was an FELA case in the city and it was a guy who they had surveillance on, and they set him up just perfect for it. And it, and it was so bad for him, and I guess humiliating. They pulled it out during the trial, and they didn't. his attorney didn't know about it. And this is a guy with a family, wife and kids. I think they may have been in the courtroom. And this guy, while it was going, while it was playing, 
and he was hurt, but he maybe they they were trying to say he was hurt worse than he was. The plaintiff, while this tape is being shown, starts breaking down, crying and sobbing at the counsel table, and the result was like terrific for him <laughs> in the case. And clearly, he was doing things on the video that he was suggesting or saying yeah. he couldn't do, but the jury just didn't like this big, huge corporation yeah. taking Eating these up. pictures and then humiliating him, hurting him and then humiliating him. And I think they either gave what, what the plaintiff's lawyer asked for us a little bit more. Yeah, It's like a wounded dog, an injured dog. Nobody wants to see somebody hit the... That, that's what I say. It's and I say Maybe it's a bad comparison, but it's if somebody's hurt and they've been through some bad stuff, I think it's the biggest favor I, we get from the defense side is when they want to go after them. I think you know? that's true. I think you you cannot, no matter what it is, you can't try to humiliate the plaintiff. Yeah, you, or that's anybody. it. That's it. Yeah, maybe yeah. an expert. Maybe they don't care about the experts. Maybe you can humiliate because them. you know usually it's a, it's not one individual against another, but it's a situation where he's got a big company or something, yeah. or a manufacturer, yeah. or a railroad. And but boy, it can backfire. And oh, the truth of the matter is, when we get a little taste of blood in our mouth in trial. Sometimes you just can't help it. I remember a case in St. Louis County. I don't know. This was probably five, ten years ago. And it was a case I should have won. I did win it. I should have won with all 12 jurors. But one guy voted against me. And I never talked to jurors, ever. But it was a case I should have won. He should have voted for me. And I wanted to know why did he vote against me. And I went up to this little guy. He was very mild-mannered guy. And he said to me, and I don't even know what I did. I don't remember now. But he looked at me and he said, I knew you should win. I knew it was not your client's fault. I knew that he shouldn't win. I knew that we all knew that very early on. But when he was at the accident, he was hurt. It's his fault, but he was hurt. And so nobody really came to his aid then. And then he came into court and then you ran over him then. <laughs> and he said, I just thought. He wasn't hurt till you heard him. He said, you ran over him then, and I just thought somebody needed to be on his side. I knew it wouldn't make any difference, but it would make a difference to me. And I think of that every time yeah. I cross him. I always think, all right, remember that man, because he was bad. It, but it didn't make a difference, but it made a difference to me. <laughs> I had a case with, it was a bunch of insurance fraud cases against the same company with their agent who was, Stealing money from elderly people. And mm-hmm. we had the lawsuit filed on one of the cases, and I represented this man who, and their defense was, they had him sign all this paperwork saying, you know, with the disclosures and he's not the age or whatever. And so what would happen, we had several of these cases, and they would spend six hours going through these, this paperwork with my clients where, you know, what the agent told them was different. You didn't read this, and you didn't read this, and you didn't read this. Of course, they, it's, you know how it is. You get all this fine print, 15 pages and they would all say yeah I didn't I trusted your the agent yeah. one of my clients had appeared for his deposition and it was going to be all day and sure enough this lawyer the same lawyer is going through page after page and he just was asked about it and did you read this no and oh. and and then finally when they were all done with that I asked him why didn't you read it and he said, well, I can't read. I saw things with trees <laughs> I let him go on I let him go on for six hours so funny <laughs> <laughs> so the very next depo I had with the same lawyer in the same group of cases, first thing he said was, can you, can you read? No, <laughs> That's great. how we started. That is great. Yeah, but I just, just out of kind of being mean, I guess, I figured. That was well, creative. <laughs> yeah, that was a good way to handle it. Speaking of reading, I've handled a, a number of cases involving arbitration clauses where I've asked, and sometimes the same person on multiple cases, to read their arbitration 
agreement, at least a paragraph. Yeah. And my favorite one would be the first sentence that has 400 words. It's an eight-point type, and they can't do it consistently. They can't do it. They skip lines. They miss words. It's so hard to read. It's not legible. What? And they expect the, the plaintiff should have read that. And it's not about, again, about testimony. It seems like a lot of what we're focusing on here is demonstrative showing things. And Impact. It, it, it reminds me of the, the term talking heads. I think people get so tired of hearing yeah. talk, talk that it's, is it fair to say that these are some of the prime opportunities to advance your case, to do something that does not involve talking. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We'll be back with more with Debbie Champion. This is Eric Feith, Tim Cronin, and John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.